Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Rappencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Yes, climate change is melting many glaciers within the national park system, but that doesn't mean you still can't find some out there in the parks. This past week, Rebecca Latson told you where to find some of those glaciers and presented some beautiful photo documentation of some of them as well. We also brought our readers a story of Parks Canada's use of a French storyteller to create a new audio tour for one of its historic sites, checked in on Big Bend National Park during the state of Texas's deep freeze, and brought an encouraging story from Dry Tortugas National Park concerning how efforts to transplant elkhorn corals there are succeeding. You can find those and other news about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, I continue my conversation with Yellowstone National Park Superintendent Cam Shawley on the state of his park. We discuss efforts to greatly reduce the number of invasive lake trout in Yellowstone Lake, Yellowstone's infrastructure needs, and some of the conservation projects park staff are working on. And at the end of the show, we also voice travelers' position that the National Park Service needs to conduct an environmental impact statement, not a less rigorous environmental assessment, on plans to drill for oil in Big Cypress National Preserve. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Cam, um, we've been talking about COVID. We're going to move on. Um, I think America has had enough about COVID and it can't disappear fast enough. But one thing that Americans love is Yellowstone National Park and the park system. And you've got such a dynamic ecosystem up there. A lot of conservation issues. Um, what's on the, the top of your uh, your to-do list in terms of conservation in the park this year? Well, first off, we you know we set five kind of larger umbrella strategic priorities last or in 2019 that we've we've been focused on. One of those priorities is strengthening the Yellowstone ecosystem and heritage resources. And you know we've got a lot going on in that priority. First and foremost. I'll mention that the 150th anniversary Yellowstone National Park or the creation of the park is, is next year in March. And so, you know, I think that's a good time for us to reflect on the past 150 years and then also 
really work together to determine are we taking the right actions today to protect this park for another 150 years? And keep in mind that only 100 years ago, you know, we killed every wolf in this park. Uh, we killed most of the grizzlies, almost wiped out all the bison. You know, we were allowing people to feed grizzly bears 50 years ago. And so in a, a relatively short amount, and that was with National Park Protection, by the way. Hmm. Uh, not a great part of our history in many ways. And when you look at the ecosystem now, and it, it's under threat by climate change, by increasing visitation, there's a lot of factors there. But generally speaking, uh, the teams here over the years, uh, especially in the last 30 or 40 years, have done a really good job of putting a lot of the pieces of that ecosystem back together. Last year, we just celebrated the 25th anniversary of, of the reintroduction of, of wolves in the Yellowstone. 2020 was a great pup year. I mean, the population of, of our, wolf, our, our wolf population grew to about 123 animals. Hmm. Um, you know, that's a fantastic success story. That's in nine packs across the park. I think that's uh, it's a stable population. We've got a phenomenal team that uh, has worked on wolves for decades and you know, they they are helping us determine what types of decisions do we need to make to protect not only wolves, but all the peripheral positive benefits of wolves moving forward. You know, you, you know about the lake trout issue in, in, in Lake Yellowstone. You know, we continue to, and that's a, a great example of where we, even in the 2000s, uh, were probably a little complacent with a very direct threat to a keystone species in the cutthroat trout. And uh, the team has done a phenomenal job, especially over the last five years, in really doing their best to eradicate lake trout and uh, repopulate the cutthroat. So we're, you know, we're putting about two million a year into that into that project. Our science panel says that we need about two to nine years of similar effort to get to a goal, which is the lake trout population being under one hundred thousand. And any estimate what it's at now? Well, they took out, uh, I think, three. They've been taking about three to four hundred thousand out every year. Wow! And that's basically a full-blown gill netting operation on Lake Yellowstone for for the past five years or so. They've evolved and worked on some really new techniques. These biodegradable wheat pellets uh, that we drop on the spawning sites that take takes the oxygen out of the water. They're putting you know GPS trackers in 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 uh, lake trout. So there's kind of a Judas fish that can can help us uh, understand better where those spawning sites are so that we can, you know, drop these pellets and have maximum impact. But that's a, you know, and the cutthroat are coming back. And, you know, that's a really important component to this ecosystem and something that right in front of our eyes almost almost happened um, in, in, in contemporary times, so to speak. And so uh, we're going to continue to invest a couple million a year minimally, uh, even when we get to that target of 100,000 or less, there will need to be probably a perpetual investment to uh, protect the cutthroat and keep that lake trout population down. You know, 2020, we set new, with working with the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Forest Service, new uh, grizzly bear habitat standards that we're um, working on implementing. We've got a northern range man management plan that we're going to uh, uh, launch here soon that's going to help us really kind of understand what the climate change impacts are on the northern range of Yellowstone and how we can take more specific actions to um, adjust to some of those impacts. 
bison, you know, the quarantine program that Dan Wink uh, started has really flourished. And as you probably know, we, we transferred over 100 bison, a brucellosis free bison to Fort Peck um, in the last 18 months. That's in partnership with the state, with the Department of Agriculture. Uh, we've got more in the, in the, in the um, facility down there right now. Uh, we've got a plan that we're working with the tribes and our partners to expand that program so we get Yellowstone bison onto larger landscapes in, in higher numbers. You know, we, I'm the chair of the Greater Yellowstone Coordinating Committee this year, which has traditionally been an all-federal managers group working within the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Uh, we invited the state uh, fish and game directors onto that executive group. They accepted. And so now the Greater Yellowstone Coordinating Committee is not only federal, but state partners as well. And we had our first meeting in the fall. And I think that uh, that's going to be really important for us when we start talking about transboundary conservation priorities and how we work with states, other federal agencies, tribes and others in, in making a lot of the decisions around you know, wildlife migration corridors, climate change, increase in visitation, that kind of thing. And then we're focused a lot on, on you know, invasive species, you know, beyond lake trout, you know, obviously, um, especially in aquatic, uh, well, aquatic or terrestrial invasives are a big threat to this, this ecosystem. And we have well over 200 terrestrial invasives in Yellowstone. You know, we're trying to get a better strategy, a better grip on how do we prevent invasives from coming into the park uh, for the invasives that are here? How do we do a good job of eradicating them? On the AIS side, you know, how do we do better, uh, more robust boat inspections? And you know, we did over 4,000 boat inspections last year alone, which was much higher than 19. So not only did visitation go up, but people boating went up. And so, you know, there's a there's a couple examples for you on a, a variety of different fronts. On the heritage and kind of historic resource side and preservation side, you know, we've got the largest historic preservation project in the country that's being funded out of the Great American Outdoors Act, which is a rehabilitation of Fort Yellowstone here in Mammoth, which is one of the most historic districts in the country, you know, which obviously was the home base for the U.S. Cavalry back in the 1800s. You know, we're redoing the Laurel Dorm down at historic Laurel Dorm next to Old Faithful Land and Old Faithful. And, you know, so we've got a, uh, a full spectrum of, of, Great things going on as far as strengthening the Yellowstone ecosystem and phenomenal team. And we'll keep pushing along. I think people can be very proud of the work that's being done here. I am. Uh, this team here is second to none uh, and uh, is continuing to really do a great job of, of creating the conditions and helping us make decisions that are going to not only keep this ecosystem as stable as possible, but also put us in the best position to address threats that are coming our way. Yeah. You know, the 150th anniversary coming up and, and trying to get a grip on uh, the health of the park. I know back in the uh, the last century, as I like to put it, back in the 1990s, I guess it was, when Mike Finley was superintendent, the park put out a, a stay of the park um, book almost that went over just about everything that you were just talking about and, and rated them on where it was. Is there something similar that you, the park puts out for the general public to to get a look at at where things stand? So we've got an annual report that we'll be putting out, um, and we should have that released here in the next three to four weeks. I think people, and it's divided by uh, you know our strategic priorities in, in addition to strengthening the Yellowstone ecosystem, our 
<clears throat> focusing on the core, on and that's our workforce. Um, included in that is you know, housing improvements and morale, and you know how we manage our finances. What type of how do we manage within the most effective organization? There's a lot of things that we're doing in that priority. Um, strengthening the Yellowstone ecosystem, which we just talked about. Uh, third priority is delivering a world-class visitor experience. Uh, fourth is investing in infrastructure. And then fifth is building coalitions and, and partnerships. Uh, that annual report's divided into those five areas. So people are going to get a really good idea of all of the great work that's going on and some of those different priorities. And we also are contemplating, and I've talked to Mike, some type of similar state of the parts for, for, for the 150th. I don't know exactly what that might look like, but I do find I have read that. I think it's a 99 document and it's very informative. And I think it does a, a really nice job of, of outlining, you know, which species are kind of stable, which species are under threat. Um, and, and it's a, a good way of us. And we have that information in different places, but I think it's important that we, we put that into a, into a, a format that people can read and understand kind of where we are in different areas. Yeah, I think it'd be a wonderful product to see again. Infrastructure needs, Great American Outdoors Act, bringing money to the park. You have a couple bridges, I think, that need to be replaced, no? Yeah. Well, I think we're going to do pretty well. At uh, least. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the team in Washington and the team coming in is, you know, I'm excited about. Uh, we got good support from the, from the, the last administration also on a lot of these key priorities, um, you know, it's a mix. I mentioned the historic preservation projects, which are really important and core to the mission. We also have, uh, you know, Lewis River Bridge down by the south entrance has to be replaced. We've got the Yellowstone River Bridge ultimately out there going towards Lamar uh, that will need to be replaced. The Gardner River Bridge here just down the road from Mammoth. And those are, those are big deals. I mean, those are 50, $60 million projects. And, and a lot of disruption. Yeah, it'll be a lot of disruption. But I mean, remember, a lot of this, I mean, we're doing this road project right now between Tower and Mount Washburn. That road is built in the 30s, and it has not been worked on substantially since the 30s, yeah. to the point where we basically, you know, as you know, we closed it down last year, and we've got one more year of it. It's going to be a lot better. But, you know, this, this, road, this road network here, which represents about 1% of the park, you know, was was built when there was less than a million people in the park. Yeah. And same with the parking lots and, and those types of things. And so, uh, although there's been a lot of good work done over the years, uh, we've got a significant backlog, and I think Great American Outdoors Act is going to help us substantially address some of that. Is is one of those bridges going to be tackled this year? Uh, we should have the Lewis River Bridge is on the list uh, to be awarded this year. We just finished the Pelican Creek Viaduct and Bridge this year. That was a big multi-year project. And then we're gonna be pursuing funding for those other bridges I mentioned. And I mean, they're still, you know, they're still in okay shape. They're not gonna collapse or anything. We still, we get them inspected every year and that kind of thing, but they, they definitely need attention and, and quickly. But as far as you don't see any construction starting on on the Lewis River Bridge this year? Uh, we will probably award that contract this year, but uh, I doubt we'll get to a construction initiation in 21. Yeah. What about campgrounds? There's um, obviously a lot of demand for camping all of a sudden, and last year was one of the best years that the RV industry has had in a long time, I think. 
and I know there's pressure from the RV industry to have bigger national park campgrounds to handle some of the bigger RVs and to provide more amenities. Um, is that something you're grappling with or that's not on the top of your list? Well, I'm not, I'm not opposed to taking existing developed campgrounds and, you know, making them better. I think that's a good thing. And that, that might include adding RVs, hookups and in, in, or, or providing more hookups and that kind of thing in certain campgrounds. I do, I, I'm not interested in adding more campgrounds or, or enlarging uh, campgrounds that we do have. So I think that, uh, you know, that there's a good market for that outside the parks as well. I think you're going to see some expansion there. I don't, I don't think that the uh, solution there is to expand within the park boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. I know many readers will be glad to hear that. You know, you guys are an interesting animal in that you do touch three different states and you've got the whole greater Yellowstone ecosystem and, and all the acres that goes along that and all the wildlife that goes along with that as well. And um, there's been some talk about um, charging a conservation fee. You know, some of the outside groups, I think in Wyoming, they've been talking about that to try and um, have visitors to Yellowstone and Grand Teton pay a little extra money to help um, with conservation of wildlife beyond park boundaries. Is, is that something you're hearing a lot of? I've had those conversations. I would suggest that uh, while well-intentioned, you know, if there's ever going to be a fee increase, that that revenue needs to go to addressing gaps within the park. Uh, what we do in the park clearly benefits what happens outside the park. I mean, I think last year between Grand Teton and Yellowstone, it was close to a billion and a half in positive economic spending in communities within 60 miles of the parks. That's a big deal. We already spend, or we already send, our concessioners send 25 million a year in gas tax and sales tax to Wyoming. You know, I would suggest that there's a good conversation to have around what a conservation fee could look like that cannot be solely on the backs of visitors to national parks that are already providing hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to surrounding counties, communities, and states, and without addressing some of the shortfalls that the parks have. Uh, mm-hmm. That said, I think if there's a, a way forward where there's, you know, obviously legislatively that would be disallowed right now anyway, that concept, but, you know, I would suggest if the, you know, the state wanted to uh, contribute to a conservation fund or a county and a community. Uh, they wanted to take some of the existing uh, revenues they're getting from visitors and apply that towards a conservation fund. And the park could participate in that and that we could agree on who would govern that money, what priorities it would be allocated to. I don't think the concept is necessarily bad, but it can't just be let's add a fee to the visitors and then make them pay for kind of a an unknown group of priorities outside the park yeah yeah you know it's it's no great secret that i really love yellowstone and i'm fortunate enough to live within a half day's drive and uh, we try and get up there at least once a year and um i really love the lakes getting out to paddle shoshone lake and the, and the big lake yellowstone and my last backpacking trip was down into the the beckler region which is just a, a fascinating um part of the park that fortunately not too many people seem to go to yeah what about you where where do you like to go in the park when you want to get away from it all and clear your head well i've 
I did 200 miles in the backcountry last last summer. On foot? On foot, yeah. Well, I did, I did, I did some on horse, but I did a lot of it on foot. Did a lot of day day trips. You know, did Electric Peak with my son. Went way up into uh, Lamar River, uh, the Lamar River Trail down to Calpe Creek and some other places. Uh, went into Thoroughfare twice. And, uh, you know, it's a real, it's the real park. I mean, it's, uh, we've got a lot of challenge. I mean, 99% of our challenges, if not more within 7% of the, of the road corridor and the developed areas in the park. And yeah, that 7% deserves attention, but I would say once, and I did count this, once I got a mile off the road, I counted nine people and 200 miles in the backcountry, <laughs> And so you know, the vast majority of this park doesn't see a visitor. And, you know, I, I really encourage people to get out in the backcountry more. I think out of our 4 million visitors or 3.8, around 37, 39,000 do overnights in the backcountry campsites. So it's a pretty a minuscule number. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's, that's a nice thing in some ways. I mean, you can really, in a very short amount of time, get away from the road, get away from the noise, uh, and it's it's a pretty special thing to have in the lower 48. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, on one of those thoroughfare trips, didn't didn't you come back out to to find your gasoline tanker truck overturned? Yeah, yeah, we yeah we hiked out, and um, you know, there's always you, you kind of the the you got, you got to slip slip back into reality once you come out of the backcountry and figure out what's going on in the world and. You know, that's another thing on, on connectivity. I, I know a lot of folks are interested in, you know, what's the plan for communications and connectivity. And I'd like to, we can talk a, a little bit about that, but, you know, in, in almost all the places that I just talked about, you know, even when you're a mile off the road, you're also not in cell coverage. Um, you have no form of connectivity unless you have a satellite, you know, some type of satellite device or something like that. But, uh, I think that's special and that's a big part of the experience as well. Now we need connectivity in in certain areas. I mean, you put 4 million people into 350 miles of road in a year, you know, you're going to have public safety issues and, and things that uh, you need quality communications for. And then also from a, a workforce recruitment retention standpoint within the developed areas. And I stress within the developed areas, you know, we need quality communications and connectivity. I think some people don't necessarily understand that the conversation right now really isn't about should there be connectivity in the park. First and foremost, you know, I've got a moratorium on adding any any tower or cell towers or any substantial any kind of a substantial expansion on on communications infrastructure. You know, we're as you probably know evaluating a proposal. We have not made a decision on it to bring fiber optic into the park. And I've seen a lot of different comments about the fiber. What I would ask people is, you know, you look at decades of infrastructure that's been put up on mountaintops in this park, reflectors that have been put in the backcountry. What's the pathway forward? If you wanted to get rid of all of that, I mean, you, you have to, you have to agree, and I know some people don't, but that there's got to be some level of com of com communications for public safety for workforce communications, training, things like that. But what we've done is we've evolved over the decades. And every time technology evolves, we add a new antenna 
onto a ridge top or, or a, you know, a new reflector somewhere. How do we get ourselves out of that? And while you were, like I said, we haven't made a decision on fiber, the Grand Teton put fiber in last year. It was all put in right alongside the pavement and the already mm -hmm. developed road corridor. Yeah, you know, your speeds went from 1.5 to 3.0, you know, 1.5 to 3 megabyte downloads to uh, 1,000. And then you also have a pathway to start pulling some of this infrastructure that's been put up over decades and, you know, reverse that resource degradation that's happened. And so, you know, I don't know which pathway we're going to go there, but, you know, I appreciate people's passion on this issue. Uh, but we've got to kind of figure out a way to, to have quality communications within those developed areas and then also to reverse some of the impacts that we've had in the past. So and anyone, people that have ideas on how to do that, you know, I'd, I'd like to listen to them. I do want to clear up that we're not putting a bunch of more cell towers and corridors. You know, I'm, I'm not, not looking to even expand into the road corridors. Um, you know, people have driven around this park. I mean, the majority of the roads don't have cell coverage but there are clearly some things that we need to address. And you know, you know how remote the interior of Yellowstone is. Yeah. Um, unless my hiring strategy is to hire a bunch of single people <laughs> that, don't, that don't care about connectivity into some of the most remote places in the lower 48. I mean, we want the best of the best here. And frankly, you know, I get it. You know, people that want to come here and visit, it's nice if there's not connectivity and you know, um, remember wherever you go and stay, unless you're going to the back country here, there is connectivity. It's just bad. And a lot of that infrastructure is there. So it's not, it's not a conversation about, are we going to put new infrastructure in per se, but it's about how do we make it better? And, you know, if you've got kids that need to do homework, these are real life issues with a workforce. Yeah. You got kids that need to do homework or you got a spouse that won't move to the park unless you um, unless, you know, they can work online or telework or whatever the case is, you end up picking maybe the best of the worst instead of the best of the best. You go into some of these positions and if people care about this park, the workforce is essential and high quality workforce in accomplishing that mission. And we've got to do the best job that we can to both attract and retain those people here. And a lot of folks aren't going to come without, you know, connectivity. Yeah. When they ran that line in, uh, Grand Teton, did they run it up to the south entrance of Yellowstone? Yeah. So it's there waiting for you. Yeah. yeah. You know, a lot of these problems all kind of, or issues, all kind of descend from visitation. What, what about visitation at Yellowstone? How much visitation can the park take? Well, yeah, so it's, it's a good question. I mean, it's a complicated question. I think that first and foremost, we, we haven't had a strategy on visitor use management. We've done surveys and we've, we've done some good things, but we, we don't have a cogent framework to really give us the information and the actions that are necessary to answer your question. There is no question there are actions that we need to take in certain areas of the park to address increasingly high visitation and congestion. I want to do that strategically. And it doesn't mean let's wait forever. But, you know, we, we've established last year a, a framework to work within, which we're working off of now. That framework is kind of based on four categories. You know, what are the impacts of increasing visitation on the resources of this park? Now, that seems like a, you know, 
an easy question to answer. But the reality is that 98% of the people stay within a half mile of the road corridor. And so when you actually look at true ecosystem impacting actions that visitors are having, they're pretty minuscule. And, and I, I get people to argue with me all the time on this. They're like, oh, you can't have four million people in the park and, and not have impacts. I'm not saying there's not impacts, there are. But remember that it's in a very small percentage of the park. That doesn't mean we ignore it. We don't do things to mitigate and things like that. But, you know, we've got to do it in a in a strategic way and, and take actions that are actually going to have meaningful outcomes. And so, you know, this last year, for instance, in that category, what are the impacts on resources? We substantially increased our monitoring. You know, where are we seeing human waste? Where are we seeing more litter? Where are we seeing, you know off-road travel, things like that. And where is that happening? Why is that happening? Is it because there's too many visitors, because we don't have the right signage, we don't have the right enforcement, not enough parking, what are the cases? And believe me, I don't want to, there's no way to build ourselves out of this problem. But I'll give you a good example. At Madison Junction, which is the intersection for people that don't know that comes from West Yellowstone. It intersects with the road that comes that, that traverses Mammoth Old Faithful. It's a three-way intersection. This kind of gets off the resource part, but you'll 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 get the, the gist. Sure. For years and years and years, it had one, it's a three-way intersection with one stop sign. So the traffic coming from West Yellowstone had to stop at, at the intersection, but the traffic going north-south didn't. And we'd have literally like three, four mile backups. And, you know, years, years ago, before I got here, they did a transportation study, uh, an expensive one. And, you know, they came up with, yeah, we should do a roundabout or you should do a flyover, you know, all kinds of different alternatives. And when I got here in 2019, well, I got here in late 18, but when I had, I had a meeting down there with, with the team in 2019 and they said, can you please just put three stop signs in? Just try it. And the transportation study said that wouldn't work. And we're like, well, my, there's nothing that we can, we can try it. Let's just, let's just do something. We put the three stop signs in and it completely solved it. Uh, we monitored it for, I think, 18 days last year. And, and there was no more than like a 14 car backup in any direction. Hmm. So the point though, is if you looked at that traffic backup, that was three or four miles. You'd be like, you got to cut the number of visitors that are coming to this park. The reality is for that particular intersection, we solved it pretty simply, putting three stop signs in. Not everything is that easily solvable. And you do re reach critical mass at some point. But do we bet do we understand where those impacts are happening and what our actions need to be? That's category one. Category two is what are the impacts on of increasing visitation on our staff, our staffing levels, our infrastructure? Um, you know, you put a million more people a year in this park flushing toilets, driving on roads, driving off roads, whatever, you're going to have big impacts on staffing and infrastructure. And so that that's something that we're measuring that we really haven't before. And we just, I mean, I just literally yesterday had a conversation about how quickly the pit toilets are filling up from visitors using them. And, hmm. you know, it's a reality and it, it's a, you know, we don't want to go throw, well, we, the answer is probably not, let's go put 20 more pit toilets in. But that's good information to have as far as an impact. The third one is what's the impact on visitor experience? And as you saw from the visitor survey from 2018, which is the most comprehensive in, in, in the country, you know, 70% of the visitors are, are first-time visitors. 
um, you know, low, uh, high 80s, low 90s, uh, good to excellent experience rating. There's some frustration in, in several areas, but generally speaking, people are having a good time. That doesn't mean that that's not something to pay attention to, but it was quite different than what people thought, which was we were going to get this survey back saying that, you know, everything was horrible and they had to wait in line all the time and all that kind of thing. The fourth category is what's the impact on the gateway communities? And that's important as well. And so resources, infrastructure and operations, experience and gateways, those are the four areas that we're, that we're focusing on. And when it gets to how many visitors can be in the park, you know, each one of those things has actions that we can take uh, to mitigate and to make to do better. And as, as visitation increases, those actions also have to increase. The starting conversation, though, is not let's put a reservation system in place or cap visitation right away. We may get to that point. You know, I'm not adverse to, to looking at alternatives and options for when visitation continues to go up and we've got the data to support it, you know, what types of kind of more extreme actions that we might take to manage visitation. That's not the starting point of the conversation, especially when you didn't have a strategy in the first place and you didn't have the right data to base some of your decisions on. And so, you know, we've got this shuttle feasibility study that we're starting this year, uh, which will look at, you know, is a shuttle feasible between Old Faithful and West Yellowstone? How would that work? How expensive would that be? How would, would that would that drop visitation or congestion? Uh, we're putting these electric shuttles as a pilot at Canyon this year. You know, there'll be a shuttle that runs out of the campground at Canyon to the village. There'll be one that runs out of the lodges to the village. Uh, we think that's a um, that's got some serious promise for the future. Um, we're doing some pilots at Norris, which has become very busy in regards to actively managing traffic. Um, what I want to get out of, and you and I've talked about this, is you know, and I'm not. This isn't a criticism of my predecessor, but because they're doing the best job that they can, you know, with the, the temporary parking lot at uh, Midway Geyser Base and at Ferry Falls, you know, they put that in to see if it would work, and you know, it hasn't worked. You know, the, the bottom line is that they, our, our observers saw, you know, somewhere around a thousand cases of human waste and and litter in and around that that uh, that parking area. Uh, we didn't put trash cans in. We didn't put uh, restrooms in because the, the ground is hot. Uh, so there wasn't the infrastructure to build around a parking lot that's, that, that now delivered some of those impacts I just described. We probably do need to do something at Midway, honestly. You know, that parking lot was built decades and decades ago. Uh, like I said, I don't want to just go start building larger parking lots to try to handle the problem. That's not the solution. That may be part of the solution in some areas to some degree. But there's a lot that goes into that thinking. So, you know, I don't know to answer your question. That was a long answer. What the park can handle? There are even at four million places that are overwhelmed, places that are too congested. What I want to understand is, okay, what does that mean in those categories I just mentioned? And then what actions can we take uh, to mitigate that at the visitation level that we're at now? And at what point do we start taking more aggressive actions as we move forward and visitation increases? And that let's do it strategically, let's communicate it. And you know there's a lot of divergent opinions on what that looks like. And you can't just flip a light switch and go, hey, everybody, we're gonna, we're gonna cap visitation in Yellowstone because while there'll be a lot of people that support that, there'll be a lot of people that don't. And so we wanna be prepared. And we also wanna show that we've taken 
strategic actions based on actual information, data, science, impacts uh, to make some of those decisions. Yeah, well, there's certainly no shortage of uh, challenges you have before you, but at the same time, you also have 2.2 million wonderful acres that uh, it's easy to get lost in and and avoid those crowds. You know, Cam, we could go on and on and on, I'm sure, and uh, we'll just have to catch up uh, down the road and and revisit some of these other issues. But um, it sounds like you got a full year ahead of yourself, and hopefully uh, COVID will disappear and, and we can all have a good time this year. Yeah, I thanks for having me on, Kurt, and um, to to your listeners. You know, I appreciate the support of the park. You know, we're going to continue to work on on articulating what we're doing and why we're doing it with the the park's best interest in mind. And you know, we'll do our best to explain why we're making decisions that we're making. And you know, look forward to the next time we can chat. Sounds good. All right, Kurt. Thanks a lot. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. And now, an editorial. Once the Biden administration has a Senate-confirmed Interior Secretary, That person needs to see that the National Park Service conducts an environmental impact statement, and not a less rigorous environmental assessment, on the current plans to drill for oil in Big Cypress National Preserve. Nothing less should be expected to protect the integrity not only of the nation's first national preserve, but also that of Everglades National Park next door. What is potentially at risk from drilling activities both the actual drilling, but also the infrastructure needed to enable it, is a landscape rife with threatened and endangered species, 
and which is a conduit for roughly 40% of the water that flows through the Everglades and into Florida Bay. Big Cypress Superintendent Thomas Forsyth has said that the park staff will prepare an environmental assessment on the drilling proposal put forth by Burnett Oil Company. It's a proposal that includes two well pads supporting horizontal drilling projects that can tap multiple wells. As such, the project deserves a more intensive environmental impact statement, and not just because of the natural resources at risk. Think not? Track down a copy of the preserve's 1991 general management plan. That's right. The preserve is being managed under a 30-year-old plan that doesn't take into consideration current drilling technology or practices. Once you find it, dig into Appendix B, the section on Area of Influence for Oil and Gas Development. Here are some of the key takeaways. Exploration and drilling activities may last for only a few months, but a single production activity may last as long as 40 to 80 years. Reclamation activities, regardless of how well they are performed, may still not provide a total return to a natural condition. The vast expanses of prairie in the central and southern portions of the preserve would allow oil and gas developments to be seen at great distances, possibly two to three miles, particularly during drilling operations. Visually, reclaimed roads and pads may require many decades to return to a somewhat natural condition. Surface spills of production fluids would affect surface water quality near producing wells. Spills of crude oil or brines would be possible at the wellhead, at the tank battery, or along the pipelines. While crude oil can have severe effects on the environment, brine spills may be more damaging in both the short and the long term. The amount of freshwater used for drilling operations in the preserve can be enormous. Freshwater wells for oil and gas drilling operations are generally drilled on the pad. The average volume of freshwater extracted during a typical 45-day drilling operation in the preserve is 1.3 million gallons of water. Wastewater brought back up is then pumped into the boulder zone, a deeper brackish water zone, an unconsolidated formation found between 1,800 and 4,000 feet deep. The National Park Service has calculated the distance that an oil spill could travel based on maximum surface water flow rate and probable detection and containment time. Although surface water flow rates have not been determined in the preserve, reported flow rates in the Everglades ranged from 0 to 1,550 feet per day. The maximum of 1,550 feet per day was used in the calculation because the preserve probably has a slightly higher gradient than the Everglades next door. If oil or brine was spilled or leaked onto the ground, it could percolate downward to the groundwater table. Upon reaching groundwater, most of the constituents would spread along the groundwater surface and assume the direction of lateral groundwater flow, making cleanup extremely difficult and costly. A loss of produced water brines from an earthen storage pit from 1984 to 1986 degraded groundwater quality and resulted in damage to vegetation downgradient from the impoundment. A three-acre dead zone of pond cypress was reported, and abnormal pond cypress growth was reported in a seven-acre area extending approximately 700 feet from the source of that spill. There are more concerns raised in the final environmental impact statement attached to that 1991 GMP, and they're equally worrisome. The fact alone that those conclusions were raised 30 years ago 
should be enough to justify an EIS on Burnett's current plans to see whether the latest technology has mitigated some of those concerns, or also to know how Burnett would respond to a worst-case scenario. What also can't be overlooked are the floral and faunal wonders that reside at Big Cypress and which need a healthy Big Cypress to survive. The state of Florida lists nearly 70 plants within Big Cypress as endangered, and if you include threatened species, the state's tally reaches 100 for the preserve. More than 30 species of orchids grow in Big Cypress, perhaps most notable among them the ghost orchid that snakes its roots around the trunk of its host tree, anchoring its beautiful flowers. Then there's the resident charismatic megafauna, the Florida panther, which some view as the most endangered mammal on the continent. The 1991 EIS noted the panther and how it was coping with oil development in the preserve's Bear Island and Raccoon Point fields. It said that habitat loss and fragmentation and disruption of normal travel routes are concerns in the preserve, especially as they relate to the Florida panther. Large predators may be severely affected by development activities due to their secretive nature and tendency to avoid humans. Panthers are believed to be relatively sensitive to human intrusion into their habitat. While the best-documented panther populations in the preserve coincide with the Bear Island and Raccoon Point oil fields, which could indicate a fairly high tolerance level, the current population is a remnant of a once larger, more vigorous population in the region. The demise has been attributed to loss of habitat quality due to many things, including petroleum operations and road construction. Something else shouldn't be overlooked when we're talking about oil production in Big Cypress. The state of Florida and the federal government are investing billions, that's billions with a B, to restore the river of grass and improve the health of the Everglades. Why stop short of doing the most intensive and rigorous assessment of proposals to drill for oil in one of the most biodiverse and vital ecosystems, not only in the national park system, but also on the entire continent? For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope as you enjoy our weekly podcasts that you'll appreciate that National Parks Traveler is a nonprofit news organization that relies greatly on its listeners and readers to get by. Please consider a donation when you visit our website to read the latest news about national parks and protected areas in the United States and Canada. For The Traveler... This is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.